We continue this evening in our study of the book of Revelation. So I invite you to take your Bible and open to Revelation. And tonight we're going to be looking at chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. If we're going to give a title to our study tonight, we'll entitle this study, The Heavenly Throne. The Heavenly Throne. Before we jump in, though, a few words to set up our study tonight. I'm sure you've heard people talk today about, uh, when it comes to learning, that predominantly people would categorize themselves as being visual learners. Anyone ever hear someone say that before? Maybe even you here tonight would say that the most comfortable form of learning, the best way that you would learn, would be through the medium of that which is visual. And of course, people likely have said that throughout the ages, though for us today, it is especially unique. There's an interesting book that has been written entitled Three Pieces of Glass, describing the way that three pieces of glass have transformed the way that we live and sadly for many result even in them feeling isolated and lonely. What are these three pieces of glass? The windshield, think of the car, the television, your TV screen, and your smartphone. That each one of these pieces of glass subtly has trained us and teaches us and maybe even has some unintended consequences that have affected us. But how common it is for people to say, yes, when it comes to learning, you know, sure, I can sit under a lecture, but the best way that I learn is through the medium of the visual. Well, how interesting. Because when we come to the book of Revelation, one of many examples in the Bible that God understands that propensity that we have towards the visual. And how for us learning, sure, we can read, we can listen to a lecture and understand and study that way. But how it can be helpful to have some visual and some images put before our mind. And really, when we come to Revelation chapter 4, we've seen it already in Revelation. I mean, think of chapter 1. But chapter 4 and on, that's where Revelation takes on this apocalyptic genre in the Bible. Where suddenly we're going to be introduced to some unbelievable sights, scenes, visions, images, that admittedly, even as we have to stop and think and wrestle, what do these images signify? There's a challenge there. And yet, if there ever was a book that would be helpful for us today, 21st century people trained for the visual, well, it would be the book of Revelation. So tonight we come to this study looking at a unique and a special scene by way of reminder where we've been the last few weeks. We have been walking through Revelation. In fact, if you look back to Revelation chapter 1, you remember the message Pastor Hardy opened up, setting the stage for the entirety of the study. On Revelation 1, and specifically verse 19, we were clued in on a very helpful verse that paints for us the journey that we're going to travel on through this unique letter. Where the Apostle John, as he writes in verse 19 of chapter 1, Therefore, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. Do you remember the significance of this verse? In many ways, it's providing for us the outline for the book of Revelation. Write the things which you have seen, John. What would that be? the vision just described in chapter 1. Write the things which are. What is that? Well, you remember chapter 2 and chapter 3, each of these messages delivered to each of these churches there in Asia Minor. But then, write the things which will take place after these things. 
we've come to that juncture starting now in chapter 4. So we're coming to a significant division now in the book of Revelation. A division and a section that's really going to take us from chapter 4 all the way to the end of the book, chapter 22. Looking ahead to that which is prophetic, that which will lie in the future, and amazingly, even for us, 2,000 years later since John wrote this, we're still looking and awaiting these things to take place. Again, if we're following the chronology given to us in chapter 1. And you're probably familiar again, these unique images and the visuals that are going to come up and surface in chapter 4 through the end of Revelation. At some point, we're going to be introduced to this figure known as the beast. We're going to be introduced once again to Babylon, this resurrected anti-God empire led by the serpent, the devil himself, led by the beast. We're going to be seeing all sorts of unique things related to seals, bowls, scrolls, and judgments associated with each. And soon, we're really going to be looking upon a unique period of time that the other pastors have been alluding to it. If we were to study elsewhere in the Bible, you can make a case for this unique window, this period known as the Great Tribulation. A period that's going to take place over seven years where here on this earth, there is going to be immense and intense Judgment from God, all for a unique purpose that we'll see in the course of the study. But before we get to any of that, before we head down onto the earth and see the wickedness that's going to increase and what's going to happen for those at that period who would seek to be faithful to the Lord, before getting down into that which is dirty, we first descend up to heaven, to this scene, this vision that's going to take place in chapter 4 as well as chapter 5. I, I wish we could cover both chapters tonight because they go together. But for our purposes, we're going to walk through chapter 4, the heavenly throne. And you know, it would be helpful for us before we walk through it to read through the entirety of the chapter because the ground we're about to walk upon maybe isn't as familiar to us. And again, some of these descriptions and some of these images, they are going to be unique. So buckle up, hang tight. Let's read through chapter 4 and we'll walk through it together tonight. The Apostle John writes, Revelation chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. There was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads, out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. There were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, the second creature like a calf, 
The third creature had a face like that of a man. The fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. Because of your will they existed and were created. The scene in heaven of this heavenly throne. Now, I hope that as I read through chapter 4, you heard this unique word repeated many times in this chapter. If we were to single out one word that dominates chapter 4, what word would that be? Throne. And you notice the entire chapter Everything that's described, even these unique creatures and these mysterious figures, 24 elders, and the descriptions of of radiant beauty and and precious jewels, you name it, how everything in chapter 4 all centers and is governed by and is spoken in relation to this one throne. to help us all tonight, to remind every one of us when we first look up and gaze at this scene in heaven, for all the glory and all the mystery and majesty of what it is, it's all centered around this one throne and chiefly the figure who sits upon this one throne. With that in mind, and even looking at the end of the chapter, We're in response to this figure on the throne. There are these hymns and songs of praise offered up to the one on the throne. I think we can approach tonight maybe in a a little bit of a unique way in terms of the outline. In fact, I'll, I'll be honest, I've never done something like this before. So hang tight. What we're gonna do is as we work through the chapter, we're going to provide for you a sentence that we're going to build as we work through the chapter. A sentence that provides for us why you and I must worship this one seated on the throne. Because that's what chapter 4 is all about. Before it dives into all the judgment and all the evil that God will justly deal with, we tonight are reoriented to what is the ultimate priority and whom it is that we should be worshiping. In fact, tonight, to adapt and borrow language you're familiar with, think back to the prayer that Jesus gives to his disciples when they ask him, Lord, teach us to pray. You remember the phrase, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is where? In heaven. Borrowing that, adapting that. Tonight we need to see worship on earth as in heaven. You ready? Worship on earth as in heaven. Now it's going to be a moment before I begin to give you this sentence that in the course of the study, we'll give you the words, we'll build upon it. Before we get to that, we first have to walk through some of these opening verses here. And again, everything is all related to the throne. Approaching the throne, 
observing the throne, responding to the throne. We look first to verse 1. You notice, after these things, important, cluing us in that what's written here, even this vision, is subsequent to what takes place in chapter 2 and 3. Subsequent meaning it takes place after how long, we're not told. The Apostle John, again, he's sitting there on the Isle of Patmos. Already he's caught up in chapter 1 to see this unbelievable vision. And then in chapter 2 and 3, he's writing and communicating these letters to the seven churches. But now, after these things, notice, behold, a door standing open in heaven. I mean, think creatively tonight. I mean, this is like something out of sci-fi. John's suddenly looking up, and, and there's this portal that's opened up and provides access not just to the sky, you know, the first heaven, not simply to the, the stars out in the universe known as the second heavens, but no, all the way, the third heaven, where God himself dwells. A door standing open. And as John is looking up and, what, what is this? I mean, John was a human. John had seen some incredible things, but he hadn't yet seen something like this. You can think of what that response would be. Similarly, if you were to be there and you've been caught up and swept up with these visions and suddenly you look up, this door is open, and again, a voice communicates to John. And not some little weak, mamby-pamby voice. John describes it, a voice sounding like trumpets. Within, there's this authority, this settled command. The first voice, John says, which I had heard. That takes us back to chapter 1. Again, with the scene and the vision there, the one communicating, the voice speaking to him, none other than the second person of the Godhead. The God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, he again now speaking to John with a voice sounding like that of a trumpet, says to John, do you see it? Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. You know, it's kind of funny. He, he issues this command, come up here. Uh, he, he doesn't ask for John's consent. He rather just gets it. And by sheer force of this voice sounding like that of a trumpet, John is, is immediately in the spirit, verse 2 tells us, brought up into this place. Again, this, this is a vision how this all took place, what this all was like, we don't know. His body is still on the Isle of Patmos, but in some incredible, unique, uh, one-of-a-kind experience, in other words, not something you and I are going to experience, and not like the experience that so many today trying to make a buck throw out to the Christian publishers. Well, I was caught up to heaven. Uh, John's vision here of heaven is quite different than some of those bestsellers out there. I trust you know that. Come up here. I'll show you what must take place. Verse 2, immediately in the spirit, John's there. And what does he see? The text alerts us. The text jolts us. Behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. Oh, as John looks and he sees what first stands out is this throne, this throne that's signifying sovereignty, 
signifying settled control and settled rule. And there's one sitting on the throne. And John's seeing this and he's taking this in. And as best as he can, he's going to record what it is that he's seeing, again, as this visual learner. But you'll notice here and all throughout Revelation, there's a limit with our finite language. He will repeatedly use terms like, uh, like, or as, uh, comparing and doing the best that he can, but, but what he writes is just a glimpse and a glimmer of what the full reality is. There's this throne. There's one on the throne. And verse 3 will begin to describe who this figure is on the throne. He who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. There was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. He's looking, and as best as he can, he's relating it to some precious jewels that at the time people would be familiar with. And even us today, we're more or less familiar with these, but it's helpful to expand and tease it out some. He sees and describes that this figure sitting there is like a jasper stone. Um, Later in Revelation, this term will come up again in Revelation 21 verse 11. And there, as it's described even further, we get this insight that it was a a watery, uh, crystal-like brightness. So perhaps as he looks at this jasper stone, he's describing something that would be like a a diamond with light shining upon it and the beautiful, brilliant glimmer radiating off of it. But not just a diamond, he says a, a sardius, deep, deep, richly red, maybe like a ruby, maybe like a carnelian. And interestingly, even uh, these two stones, if you read in your Old Testament, you'd see that they appear. This isn't the only place they show up together in close relation in the Bible. If you were to go all the way back to the book of Exodus, and the attire is described of the high priest as he would put on unique clothing and would prepare himself to go into the tabernacle, the very place where God would dwell, and even enter into the Holy of Holies, but one day a year to uniquely offer on the Day of Atonement sacrifice to God. How on the breast of that high priest, there was this clothing, and on it would be precious stones representing each of the twelve tribes of Israel. And how interestingly that the very first and last of those stones are the same stones described here. Maybe even trying to bring into our mind uh, the one who has a covenant people that he was faithful to in the Old Testament and that he hasn't yet forgotten that Revelation will describe later. Perhaps it's even capturing the beauty of the diamond and the the richness of the red, capturing his holy justice and his just wrath that soon in Revelation is going to be poured out. Not only that, he says, there's this rainbow, but a unique rainbow. He ties it to the beauty of an emerald. An emerald, you know, is green, so perhaps this rainbow has various shades of green, maybe radiating around, again, around the throne. Even to hear of a rainbow reminds us of the rainbow as it appears in Genesis chapter 9, that symbol of God's faithfulness and his mercy. I think the commentator Robert Thomas is helpful here with some of these images. He writes, 
it is a reminder that God's mercy is as great as his majesty. That there will be no triumph of God's sovereignty at the expense of his majesty. John is looking and John is taking this in and we do well to simply stop and ask, who is this figure that he's gazing upon? And again, even here, we have to be careful the way we communicate this. John's even careful the way that he describes it. It seems as if the figure here is none other than the first person in the Godhead, God the Father, who is spirit, and no man has seen God the Father in his perfect essence. But by means of these visuals, in a way that's even veiled, it seems as if this is the figure recorded and described here in chapter 4, And you'll know in chapter 5, we want to get there tonight, but we can't. We'll then see the second person of the Godhead, the lion and the lamb, as he appears on the scene. But interesting, even as it's written here, it's not stated really in an uh, anthropomorphic form, uh, capturing as if it's a man sitting there. Just by means of the images of the precious jewels and the radiant colors John is simply basking in the glory that emanates from the one seated on the throne. And it's here that we can begin to give you the sentence that we'll build out tonight. Because God is the sovereign, glorious, You're hanging. What else? We'll get there as the study goes on. But just starting out, because God is the sovereign, glorious, you ask, where do we get that? Well, just the image of the throne. We're clued in. This is someone who's ruling and reigning, someone who is all-powerful and all-sovereign. There's no rival here. Sovereign and glorious Glorious, trying to capture all of the precious jewels and the colors that are radiating that John sees. Then we're introduced to some unique figures who are here around the throne. Verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments, golden crowns on their heads. So again, we're trying to visualize this, but but we're limited here even how to draw this in our mind. You have this throne, the brilliant colors radiating from the one who's there on the throne, and all around him, no doubt, Lesser thrones, smaller thrones, 24 total. And upon them, John sees 24 elders. Again, we have to ask, who who are these 24 elders? Well, how much time do we have tonight? A lot of trees were sacrificed trying to describe who are these 24 elders. Essentially, there are two views. Either these are angels or humans. Some who look at this and think that these are angels think that these are a special class of angels there around the throne We're told that they have white clothing. And elsewhere in the Bible, especially the scene related to Jesus' resurrection, Matthew 28, Mark 16, John 20, even in Acts chapter 1, when it describes the angels that appear, it describes that they are there in white clothing. 
There might be some other reasons why. But are these angels? Again, we want to be careful here. We are walking into some aspects in Revelation that we can try to make a case as best as we can, but showing charity and showing grace, there are good and godly men that land in a few different places here. There are some who think that these are angels, but I would submit maybe that's doubtful. Maybe not. Why? Well, nowhere else in the Bible do we see angels referred to by this term, elder, presbyteros. It's always in reference to a human. And of course, even as we hear that term, we're thinking maybe of the unique category of the office in the church of elder. So it's only used really of humans, not of angels. Also, nowhere else in the Bible do we read of angels who are seated on a throne. Pictures as if they are the ones ruling and reigning. You remember, there are others who are promised that they will rule and reign with the Lord. Believers. Many passages that support that. We don't find other passages describing angels wearing crowns. We'll get to that even in a moment. And I would even point you back to, notice the language that John uses. He says, white garments. Deliberate. Not the term that's used in those accounts in Matthew 28, Mark 16, John 20, and Acts chapter 1. No, rather, the term here, garments, they have appeared before already in Revelation. Two times in chapter 3, Look at verse 5. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. And then looking down to verse 18. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself. Both of those promises to believers who would faithfully endure I think for those reasons, and even some more, I would lean towards, no, I believe that these are humans that are seated there. Humans who are on these thrones, wearing white garments, crowned. We've seen in chapter 3 that the white garments are promised to believers who would faithfully endure. We even look back to chapter 3, verse 21. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Perhaps even tied in some mysterious way, but the promise that these believers will be seated on a throne, even that they would be crowned. Again, a promise given back in chapter 2, verse 10. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And not only that, other places in the New Testament, you remember Paul, 1 Corinthians 9.25, that believers are promised an imperishable wreath. You could translate that imperishable crown. Paul again, 2 Timothy 4, 8, laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord will award to me, and not only to me, but all who have loved his appearing. James chapter 1, verse 12, the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Even 1 Peter 5, verse 4, the unfading crown of glory. Even the term here for crown, it's, Two terms could be used, one signifying the sovereign who sits to reign, but it's not that, even though they are seated on the throne, it's a different term, a term that's describing uh, imagery from the athletic games when someone would persevere and someone would be the victor. They would be given the crown, the wreath, that they would wear signifying they received the prize and the reward. 
I think for those reasons, when we read of these 24 elders, John is looking at some representation of humans there around the throne. They've been clothed in white garments, signifying they have Christ's righteousness. They have the crown. It's been given to them, meaning they've persevered. They've been faithful, faithful even to the point of death. But then we even have to go a step further. Okay, which humans are these? How much time do we have tonight? Again, different commentators land in a few different places, a few different options. Some wonder, could this be just a representation of Israel? Possible. Some wonder, are these believers during the tribulation? Um, I think for reasons of chronology here, I don't think it's that view. Because later in chapter 7, we're going to see that these elders who are already there in heaven, as we're reading even in chapter 4, they welcome in and they receive the believers who were faithful in that period of the tribulation. Okay, well then some look at this and say, well, 24, could it be um, 12 signifying Israel, Old Testament Israel, those faithful believers, since there were 12 tribes in Israel, and then could it be uh, the 12 apostles, meaning uh, signifying the church, you know, maybe both together, 24 as a whole, this body of Old Testament saints and believers in the church under the new covenant there around the throne. Maybe. Although some would push back against that and say, well, you're now dividing this group of 24 and they're always seen together there as a whole. And perhaps because of that, since they're always seen together and there's not this division, points some to then suggest that these 24 elders, they're representing believers that are made up of the church. Those believers from Pentecost on, there in heaven now, around the Lord. Again, we might wonder, how is it that they ended up there? Well, some no doubt have died in the last 2,000 years, but maybe then others were raptured up to be with the Lord. Again, I point you back, Pastor Kevin, as he walked through the message to Philadelphia, he did point out the significance of Chapter 3, verse 10, that they'll be kept from the hour. Be one piece of evidence supporting that these are believers who have been raptured up. They're there with the Lord in heaven, representing the body of Christ. Possible. Possible. Likely. Again, you can land in a few different places. If anything, it's simply the suggestion, at least we can land that they're humans, not simply angels. Okay, we, we keep moving. We don't want to get tripped up around what's around the throne. We're wanting to keep our eyes what's on the throne. So verse 5 continues, Out from the throne, there are flashes of lightning, there are sounds, there are peals of thunder. Again, if, if we know our Old Testament, this is reminding us of the scene at Sinai as God is about to give his law and the people of Israel are all around that mountain. There's this dramatic scene, that of a thunderstorm. And unlike any earthly thunderstorm, it's the thunderstorm of God's presence. I mean, this, this is awesome and, and terrifying. And not only that, John says there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Seven lamps, not the lampstands that he's already described. Different term now, lamps signifying big, large torches, giving off a powerful, intense light and heat. And what are they? They are the seven spirits of God, a very unique term, 
If you go back to chapter 1, verse 4, connected to someone who is giving both grace and peace, it's never something signified from humans. It's always God who gives grace and peace. So for that, as well as Isaiah chapter 11, and even Zechariah chapter 4, again, you could take time to walk through those, a unique term and a unique phrase describing the Holy Spirit himself and all of his fullness and all of his perfection, hence the number seven. That even in this visual representation, whatever this looked like, something like a, a, a torch with fire around the throne. And not only that, verse six, again, we're walking through this and, and we're with John trying to understand what's going on here. Before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. What is this now? Oh, John! John's looking. He sees the throne. He sees the 24 elders seated on their thrones. He sees these torches giving off the fire. He then looks and he sees something like a sea of glass, like crystal, perhaps even signifying that the one on the throne, there's even this barrier to get to him He's set apart, he's pure in all of his splendor and in all of his majesty. And then even close and around, even encircling it, these four creatures. Four creatures that as he describes them, I mean, this sounds wild here, right? But remember, John is building on all of the revelation that has been given before. And there is a place where there are four creatures described in a very similar way that have already made their appearance in the Bible. Do you remember Ezekiel chapter 1? This is a bit dangerous. Turn in your Bible to Ezekiel chapter 1, if you would please. And you know, you can write out in the margin of your notes, Isaiah chapter 6, as well as Daniel chapter 7. Similar prophetic visions of God on his throne. But at least in Ezekiel chapter 1, as Ezekiel is with the people of Israel in exile, out in Babylon, Ezekiel by the river Kabar, one day he too is caught up into a vision and he looks and he sees, you look at verse 5, there were figures resembling four living beings. And each of them had four faces and four wings. Verse 10, as for their faces, the face of a man, the face of a lion, face of a bull, the face of an eagle. And as Ezekiel's looking at it, it seems as if each one of these creatures has four faces, each one of the, the lion, the ox, the man, and the eagle, having four wings. And as they move, uh, Ezekiel then will even look up further, drop down to verse 26 of Ezekiel chapter 1. And above the expanse, maybe even that sea of glass that was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne, like lapis lazuli in appearance. And on that which resembled a throne, high up was a figure with the appearance of a man. And I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upwards, something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward, I saw something like fire and there was a radiance around him. 
as the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so is the appearance of the surrounding radiance. And such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. What a scene. What a vision. Again, Isaiah has something similar in Isaiah chapter 6. Daniel has something similar in Daniel chapter 7. Going back then to Revelation chapter 4. At least even as we look and we see these four creatures with the face of a lion, one with the face of an ox, one with the face of a man, the fourth the face of an eagle. Are these the exact same creatures that Ezekiel describes that even later in Ezekiel 10 he will give them the title cherubim? Possibly, possibly, and maybe at least from John's perspective, he doesn't see that each one has these four faces. Possible. Or maybe at least he's describing, in addition to the cherubim, even in addition to the seraphim in Isaiah chapter 6, that there are now these four very unique creatures, angelic in being, Where are they? Close in proximity around the throne. Even borrowing the language from Ezekiel chapter 1, constantly in movement, circling about it as if they are protecting, uh, worshiping, guarding this most special throne. And they have six wings. In Ezekiel chapter 1, they're said to have four wings. Isaiah tells us the seraphim have six wings, so which is it? I mean, we don't know exactly. But at least these exalted angels with these wings, perhaps some covering their eyes, even though they're all covered with eyes, signifying they are alert, they are aware, they have very clear knowledge, and they're unsleeping in their watchfulness. The significance of the faces, a lion perhaps signifying nobility, an ox perhaps signifying strength, a man perhaps signifying intelligence and reason, an eagle perhaps signifying swiftness of speed. And again, maybe with these six wings, just like the seraphim in Isaiah chapter 6, with some they're covering their face to signify humility, and awe with some they're covering their feet because they're in the presence of the Holy One. And with the other two, they fly wide to swiftly obey God's commands. And even as they are there around the throne, what's key for us is what they are communicating. The end of verse 8 they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Well, let's go back to that sentence we were starting. Because God is the Sovereign, glorious, we'll add to it, holy, all-powerful, independent. Pause right there. That's what the angels are communicating. They are crying out to one another in praise to the one seated on the throne. Holy, 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 meaning holy, holier, holiest. Signifying this one is set apart, transcendent, not like us, not like these humans, but holy other, his transcendent holiness, and no doubt his moral, perfect, beautiful holiness without spot, without blemish, without stain. That's who this Lord God is. But not only that, he is the almighty, meaning all-powerful. 
an unlimited reservoir of power that he taps into. Never tired, never weak, never sleeping. And not only that, he's the one who was and who is and who is to come. What is that? I think John is borrowing the language of Exodus chapter 3 verse 14. When God revealed himself to be, I am. I am what I am. John here building upon that. The God who is independent from himself, for himself, by himself. The one who was, who is, and who is to come. So if you're hanging tight, again, we're building this sentence. It's all going to make sense in just a few moments. Because God is the sovereign, glorious, holy, all-powerful, independent. Then we keep going. And the living creatures, they give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne. To him who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. Because of your will they existed and were created. You ready? Can I just give you the whole thing now? I mean, you're, you're on the edge of your seat. I see that. It's all going to make sense. Because God is the sovereign, glorious, holy, all-powerful, independent, eternal. They're saying to him who lives forever and ever, creator. Because God is the sovereign, glorious, holy, all-powerful, independent, eternal creator. We must worship him. That's what chapter 4 is driving us on. Again, worship on earth as in heaven. What's the worship in heaven? At least in chapter 4, as they look upon the one on the throne, and John even is caught up in this vision and tries to describe the whole scene as it relates to the one seated on the throne. And even in hearing the, the two hymns, holy, 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 and then worthy are you, our Lord and our God, piecing it all together, it all drives us even to that very final quality listed in chapter, verse 11. The fact that because of you, you created. You created all things and because of your will, they existed and were created. That's what they're driving at here. That's why they're worshiping the Lord. Simply stopping and reflecting that this God is the creator. And what kind of creator is he? Well, John spells it out. He's sovereign. The one who sits on the throne. No one can push him off of it. What good news that is for us. What good news that was for John and these other believers. Even as the scene is given before, there's awful wickedness that's going to increase. In this period where uh, the great dragon is unleashed and the beast comes forth and the Antichrist comes and there's deception that abounds, but at least the creator sits fixed on his throne because he's sovereign. Not only that, he's not just the sovereign creator, he's the glorious creator. 
his, his beauty, that even just the, the glimpse of him, as ever John is able to glimpse upon him, radiates with this awesome beauty and glory. I mean, think of walking through the precious jewelry store and all of the precious jewels and here, to an infinite degree, the one who made them radiates forth the beauty with all of its wonderful color. Sovereign, glorious, and then holy, again, set apart, other, different, not like you and I, not like even these angels, a whole different category. The creator and an infinite gap between the creation, whether it's things seen or things unseen. All powerful, again, the one who, the beginning of the Bible tells us, by his sheer word, he speaks, and all things are coming into existence. And the one who's independent, again, from himself, for himself, by himself, a God who's totally self-sufficient, a God who in no way is needy or dependent upon his creation. God who is eternal, no beginning, no end, the one who lives forever and ever, the one who is even life itself. And of course, the one who's the creator. Can I ask, is your worship calibrated to Revelation chapter 4? Worship on earth as in heaven. This is the scene in heaven. In an ongoing and an ever continuous way, even right now, those present praising him, you are this great creator. When was the last time that you stopped and praised him and worshiped him for that unique quality? Even to let that shape and settle the way that you look and interpret all of life. It's not your life. It's not your world. It's not my life. It's not my world. It's his. And he, for his sheer glory and his sheer wonder, made all things for himself and for his glory. And thus you and I must, must worship him as creator. We might even stop and think about, okay, well, what kind of worship is this to be? Well, we can look again to the passage. At least in heaven, they're worshiping him in an unceasing way. We could say our worship can be regular, characteristic of our lives. Every day that you and I wake up, a grace from God, he has blessed us with another day, a perfect gift from this great God. We can look and we see that these elders fall down before him. Worship ought to be humble. And we see who he is, even as he's described here. And in seeing him, we see who we are. We're but creatures made from the dust. And one day the dust will return. And that he has, he's mindful of us, he's created us, he cares for us. Our worship ought to be regular, our worship ought to be humble, and we can even add our worship ought to be grateful. Maybe that can capture the scene that they take. They take these crowns. I mean, they endured. They were faithful through whatever the persecution was, whatever suffering, whatever trials they faced. A whole horse a host and a whole assortment of trial. And yet one day entering into his presence and hearing, well done, good and faithful slave, enter into the joy of your master. And he gives to them this crown that they then have. But then as they look back to the one seated on the throne, how could I hold on to this? And they cast it before him. 
grateful for who he is and what it is that he's done. And, and again, we, we so want to go into chapter 5 because chapter 5 will build it out further. He's not only our creator, he's our redeemer. He not only made us, he saved us. We'll have to wait till we get to chapter five next week. But maybe we can at least stop. And if our worship will be on earth as in heaven, we can reflect because God is the sovereign, glorious, holy, all-powerful, independent, eternal creator. We must worship him. Father, we thank you for our study tonight. We thank you for this incredible vision. Again, challenging vision, aspects of this here that we still wrestle with, with how to interpret it. But even what are those other elements compared to you seated on the throne? We join in with them. We even join in with the lyrics to the hymn, casting down the golden crowns around the glassy sea. Holy, holy, holy are you, O God. You've made us. You are the sovereign creator. Well, that means we can't even understand our lives unless if we understand them in relationship to you and into the word that you've given us. So, Father, help us, forgive us. May you use this passage tonight to reorient, to calibrate our worship. That we wouldn't even worship you in a utilitarian way because of what we get out of it. But that our worship would be pure simply for who you are. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.